Today, we're speaking with Chris Coulter. Chris is the CEO of Globescan. He works with leaders in business, multilateral organizations, and NGOs to help them better understand and respond to shifting stakeholder expectations, build trust with key constituencies, and exert greater influence in shaping the future. Chris has over 15 years' experience providing evidence-based counsel to leadership organizations at the nexus of reputation, brand, and sustainability. He's passionate about building recognized leadership for Globescan's clients through stakeholder intelligence and engagement strategies. Chris is a specialist in international relations, holding an MA in international affairs from Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Chris has international experience having lived and worked in North America, Europe, and Asia. Chris, welcome to Sustainable Minds. This is Rocket. I'm Gary, and today we're speaking with Chris Coulter. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Rocket. I want to start today with something I know that's near and dear to your heart. Uh, I recently read a post of yours where you wrote a letter to your staff. Mm. And you talked about how you are deeply saddened by the Russian invasion in Ukraine. And you talked about how your company's purpose requires you to respond to the shifting global context, especially this barbarian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I'd love to ask you some questions around that. Sure. But, uh, you know, what does, tell us about your purpose and the actions that that informs for you and your company. Great, yeah, so, so Globescan's been around for 35 years, and while we didn't have a formal purpose when the company was launched, there was always a mission-driven company, which was, right. um, you know, it began in 1987, the same year that um, Madame Brundtland released Our Common Future, kind of a seminal document defining what sustainable development is. So we feel kind of part of that, of that history. And then um, more recently, like the last decade or so, we, we sharpened and formalized our purpose to be co to co-create a more sustainable and equitable future. So that's and that's sounds generic. Lots of companies have sort of relatively similar things, but that's what we're about. That's what we've been about for 35 years, and that's kind of the focus. And the because we're small, we're relatively small as an organization. We play we we think we play this little this catalytic role in supporting bigger organizations understand their context much more deeply. And that's where the co-creation part of our purpose comes yeah. from. Like we don't do, you know, we do a little bit on our own, but really the real value is in in working together and supporting our clients who um, <clears throat> mostly are large global organizations who are universes unto themselves, right? And so the hardest part, I think, for individuals in those big organizations is to try and understand what the hell is going on externally. And so that that's kind of our role is to show a mirror or to provide a lens and widen the aperture for organizations from a multi-stakeholder, multi-geographical perspective, and I think a multi-time dimension, like where have we been, where are we now, where are we going? So that, that's the kind of role we're trying to play. So on the practical notion of the, you know, the war in Ukraine, which what, you know, is obviously a very disturbing, a horrific event, which continues, um, in the sustainability field, we have really left geopolitics aside in many ways. And um, we've kind of been 
for the last couple of decades in this globalization trend, which has kind of meant that we're all this together and the UN SD sustainable development goals can be developed with 195 countries signing off and all these things have been fantastic. And now we're hitting this wall of, I think, values clashes. I don't think it's culture clash. I think it's fundamentally value clashes between, you know, liberal progressive ideas, which includes democracy versus authoritarianism, which is all about command and control and, and restricting individual freedom. And, and uh, I think the war in Ukraine is just an exclamation point on what's been transpiring for a while. So is what that note to our staff was meant to, and, and to what I, we're thinking about is we need to better understand governance and the relationship between governance and the progress we can make on social and environmental performance. And we're just beginning to figure that out and thinking of doing some shared research programs with some clients to deeper understand polarization and where society is going and how do we better intervene on those elements and how do we fundamentally get around some of these big issues uh, that are value clashes to ensure that we collectively as a species, you know, don't screw this up any further more than we already have. Uh, maybe you touched on this, but uh, in the letter you talked about, we are in a critical inflection point. What's that? What's that inflection point? <clears throat> well, that inflection point is is multiple, and and it and it's not um, new. But I think this issue, on top of all the other stuff we've been managing, which includes a climate crisis. Um, and we see all the evidence every single month um, increasing and this, the planet keeps giving us these signals like, hey, you got, whatever you guys are doing isn't working and, yeah. <laughs> and, and you got to change it up. So we're, I think we're slowly getting the message collectively. There's a, a biodiversity and nature crisis where, where science tells us we're in the sixth mass extinction wave in the history of the planet. And uh, it's accelerating at a at an unprecedented pace, and and we're beginning to understand that we have an inequality crisis that's both economic, it's and it's also from a, a human rights perspective of equality. When we think of the ability of anyone to be who they they are and be respected and live with dignity, so those are the big three I think that are are and they're increasingly connected, and we can't solve one without the other. And on top of it, we've got this um this this challenge of authoritarianism, I think, I'm bleeding into fascism, which yeah. doesn't make our collective, because the only approach to save the world and their future generations is through a collective aligned perspective. And fascism doesn't want to do that. And I think um, we are have that on top of all the other stuff we've got to deal with. You used a quote um, that, and, and I love, uh, it says from Dr. Martin Luther King, you say the the uh, moral, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And boy, isn't that the truth? That is the truth. And and, it, and I guess it is long and windy. So it doesn't always go in the one direction. And, and that's where I think people like you and others who have been working hard to create a better world, it's been a long ongoing fight the wins happen the losses happen but it really is the the it's it's a a decades long perhaps centuries long battle that we need to do to try and change how we've developed our societies how we've um been quite rapacious with the planet and have been this arrogant monkey walking around oh. thinking that we, <laughs> We we know everything and and all the other elements and and so it 
I think the you know the arc ultimately, and and I am broadly optimistic that we we are and will find our way through things. But it's not out of passive approaches. We need to be very proactive and roll up our sleeves and a lot of sweat equity and and get on with it. I thought that uh, it's interesting that you know your career spans. Uh, decades, you know, involved in this, and maybe you could speak a little to the evolution that you have witnessed um, with sustainability, because it seems like it has gone into phases. Um, and as you say, it take, takes a long time. But, uh, and where we are today and what's critical, um, if you could speak to that, that would be great. Yeah, and and so so I think that that's an important point, Rocket. We we need to um, uh, celebrate and recognize the the dynamism of the sustainability movement and the progress that we've made collectively. So the the glass is kind of always half full, half empty. But when we look at the sweep of the last forty years, we should be, you know, despite the threats that are very. Um, acute right now, we've made a huge amount of progress. And, and I think um, if we look back through some of our work where we've been asking um, sustainability experts across the world, their view of leadership, and, and, and if we look at business leadership just uniquely, we can see back in the late 90s when we began asking this question of stakeholders across the world, the kind of companies that were referenced um, as iconic sustainability leaders were BP, Shell, Dow Chemical, Big industrial companies that were um, really doing the best idea of sustainable use of time, which was recognizing that there was an impact, that they've got negative externalities that are are real and true. And, and when Lord Brown of BP in 97 at Stanford said, big oil is climate change is real and big oil is part of the problem. That was um, but that it's obvious, but that was a monumental mind shift. So so those companies were on the regulatory front lines. They were on the activist front lines. So they were feeling lots of pressure, which made them, I think, respond to do less harm. So this this phase of leadership was really a you know recognize the problem and then try and do less harm. And then as the uh, agenda moved a little bit, be, people began to see there's not just risk to mitigate, but there's some upside. We've got chances to try and. Hire better people, retain people, get people more fired up at work by um, committing to certain things. We can find new customers and reinforce brand loyalty with existing customers because we're doing better, you know, good things around society and the environment. We can find um, new innovations through R and D that will actually take problems and create solutions out of them, and and find uh, ways to to make money off of that. All these things required a strategy, so we went into this realm around. You know, the, the mid 2000s, where we had companies beginning to launch big, hairy, audacious corporate strategies like Marks and Spencer did plan A because there is no plan B. What was the kind of the <laughs> strap line um, in 2007, which was a remarkable, highly detailed 160 metrics they were tracking. So this became a phase that we got into. And then about a decade later, again, because I think the agenda shifted and the the adaptation requirements of business to try and meet that moment shifted again to what we were calling a, a purpose-driven era, where companies began to simplify a little bit when we talk about sustainability, not just focus on the metrics and the, the science behind it and the technical aspects, but actually bring it to life for people so it resonated. And that meant 
um, finding ways to engage their tens of thousands of employees and millions of stakeholders externally, either customers, right. governments, communities. So all of that was, I think, the moment that actually opened up and broke through into mainstreaming sustainability, which we've been enjoying that phase for probably three or four years now of the mainstreaming, which is a very different dynamic where now investors are are seriously looking at sustainability as a value driver and an assessment criteria for companies. We have governments beginning with important regulations, the disclosure laws around climate change in, that the SEC is entertaining right now and what Europe is going to do are just examples, but there are other jurisdictional regulatory changes that have shifted in all kinds of dimensions around sustainability. So that's powerful. We have consumers waking up and more concerned and anxious and frightened because of the future, but also wanting, especially the post-pandemic, uh, to live and shop and um, support companies that share their values. So right. a very values-driven conversation that consumers are going through. So all these stakeholders have been doing this. And now I think we're in a moment because of the dire crises that we've been speaking about, a new era of leadership that's around regeneration. And regeneration is required because we have such a deficit in all those social and environmental uh, accounts that we have. We need to find ways, especially big companies that have that are the last truly global institutions with muscle and big supply chains and massive um, uh, innovation centers to try and move things quickly and, and shape the market. That this is they they need to find ways to not only get to zero negative impacts social environmentally, but create positive impacts and net positive impacts in a social concept conceptualization and an environmental one. So, lots of evolution, lots of dynamism. Even at the moment, we think it's the same story. It has changed, and there has been adaptation in how collectively we approached it. And it'll continue with that sort of um, right. dynamics. Uh, I'm inter I was interested in what you said uh, about it being sort of era of leadership and how, um, you know, you don't really think about it, but the different phases of sustainability really, um, you know, that, that it calls for different leadership qualities and attributes. Um, and I never really thought about that, uh, but it's it's absolutely true. Totally, and and I think that the um, the leadership that is required today, of course, has much more emphasis on collaboration because a company or any organization, an NGO, a government, can only do so much on its own. If others don't also help shift the system, then these goals are unattainable. So we. You know, if we are going to make progress on our net zero goals as a company, for example, we do need certain regulatory changes to accelerate it. We do need certain innovations and technological um, breakthroughs to make this possible. We do need consumers and citizens to live differently and vote differently. So well, I think we, we've hit the limits of individual action, you know, probably a decade ago, really. And now we're in a moment of collaboration which is easy to say and conceive of, but really hard to implement, right? Yeah. And and the good news is that we've got a new generation who have been born into a much more collaborative mindset yes. and they have a different approach. And so that's a, another green shoot and a hopeful signal we've got to hold on to. Well, I, I love the new generation because they are, they are concerned about, they want to work for someone that has some meaning to them, right? And they want to align with their beliefs 
and uh, their their values are aligned with these companies. And we work with quite a few companies in this area around the notion of purpose and, and values and especially the actions, the behaviors, the mindsets associated with their values. And some are unfortunately very artificial and they're, they make up a purpose they think yeah. is they think is going to sound good and they have uh, a, a values that are very generic and they don't invest what it really takes to pull those through and create real meaning within their organization that people are inspired to deliver on that. Totally. Yeah. In, in, in your work, do you come across these kind of situations with maybe the different corporations that you work with or any, any organization? Yeah, for, absolutely. And I think there's not necessarily a, a, some sort of a bad motivation in some of these things, but but I think some people just misunderstand the yeah. notion of purpose, right? And, and there's a superficial yeah. approach, which you say you can create a, a, a strap line or a tagline that can kind of define something and great, and then then we're done. And and that that is that's a, a corporate campaign rather than a purpose. And and right. so the the definition and the depth of understanding of what truly purpose looks like and what it means and how you integrate it and implement it and bring everybody along, it's a hard, it's a hard job. It's a lot of work. And it's not, and it's not something you can you can manifest in a short period of time. So so for example, some work we've done over the years with with a company that is very deep into sustainability is recognized as a leader has um, taken purpose very seriously as well as sustainability but five years into their journey we did an assessment of their of their management group across the across the world that sort of mid middle tier and it showed that they were halfway there and people really understanding and believing their purpose so this is a company that did it at scale yep. did a lot of effort and time and it, you know, in five years, that's as good as it gets. So anyone who believes you can switch and become purposeful overnight, it's an impossibility. Certain companies have been born that way, you know, startups who begin and the founder and all of that becomes inculcates everything they do and they can't get away from it, like a Patagonia. It's just yeah, it's exactly. always in the DNA. But if you're gonna build it and add on and and um even find an old purpose and bring it to life, you gotta be ready for a lot of hard work to do well, that. It, it's a it's a big investment. I do believe leaders can have an epiphany, and I and I uh, once worked with a with the leader of a big corporation. He says, "Oh, here we have many purposes," but but then a year or two later, he recognizes that they really need to find their north star, the the one north star, and he was all in. And we were able to work with his team and a lot of people within the organization because this this can be a complete. 360 program and they and they really landed we we helped them land on this really true core purpose by the way this company is over 100 years old and you mentioned founders so it does go back to the founder and how some of that stuff is still there in the dna of the company right. yeah. yeah and and sometimes you need to just modernize it right or bring yeah. it to life or activate right. it in a way yeah. that 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 meets the current context and gets employees, you know, switched on. Yeah, they had 10 values at one time and they got lost, but we brought those back to life in five. And we, they were there, but we kind of stated them with more relevance. So it's, you know, I see a lot of companies that are over here sort of faking it. 
but I love the companies that are really delivering, living it and delivering on it. So, yeah. and, and it is tough and, and operationalizing the purpose, which I think really exactly. is around where it meets a sustainability strategy. Cause yeah. I think purpose means it's, you know, what are you doing for the world and how do you make the world better? Um, th that that's the important piece. And, and so making, having, you have to have those things joined up and aligned and, and your, your sustainability strategy should be your engine to prove out your, right. your positive impacts in the world. I thought it was interesting that, you know, it's sort of uh, a conversion of various, you know, internally within a company, externally, these inflection points of how um, sustainability has, you know, its journey has been. And right now, I mean, it seems that the nature of what today is and really sort of rejuvenation of past mistakes um, really requires so much more than just keeping data or being compliance. Uh, you know, that, that you have to get to an internal core where there's, you know, an understanding and a desire on a personal level and for your employees as as well as the world. So, you know, like now that we experience climate change and things are really impacting our lives, you know, as far as like what you said, I mean, the war in Ukraine and the food, you know, supply and understanding this interconnectedness, this demonstration that we're all connected. And then how that sort of has paralleled these moments within sustainability's journey from an isolated sort of department over here to really being the thing that can connect and help an organization thrive by finding that innovation. I find that really fascinating. You know, but then we've got these other issues that are working against us, like, as you said, I mean, what do you do when political policies aren't in line with what's going on in the world? Right. How do you create a circular economy without the proper regulatory environment to do that? You can't. Exactly. How, how do you create net zero pathways without regulatory environment? You can't. Like, like it's just like, these things are, are, are too big and too systemic that it's not about, you know, isolated volunteer um, initiatives, however bold and ambitious they are, it's just not sufficient. Yeah, and and the fact that, like with Ukraine, the unity that it required to try to, you know, of all of Europe, I mean, that in itself is remarkable, um, yes. and it it mirrors the unity that it takes within a company. And I see people become more bold in their steps. Uh, for instance, you know, pulling out of Russia, a lot of corporations, it was sort of interesting that the oil companies were the first ones to to commit. But then slowly, so many more followed. And what would that have happened 10 years ago? Not as quickly and not not as um, as, rig as rigorously, I don't think, partly because of the transparency revolution that keeps going on. Right. What you're talking about, Rocket, is, I mean, th these are what the the values and especially the culture of an organization that allows it to do this sort of innovation in a way that goes beyond a compliance mentality. And, and, and I, you know, I, I wrote a book, a couple of guys, David Grayson and Mark Lee, 
in 2018 called All In. And it was, and we've been doing this work together for a while. And the biggest surprise we had on, on how companies the, the determinants of a leadership company and, you know, when we had certain preconceived notions, but the biggest surprise for us consistently in talking to um, corporate leaders, it was culture and how culture is so fundamental. It's a squishy concept. It's a hard one to get your, it's hard to, you know, operations, hard to create overnight, but th this is the, spe the special sauce that differentiates many of Absolutely. the companies that we're familiar with. And, and I think going, going forward, in the sustainability conversation, we do have this ESG revolution, which is really remarkable. I mean, it's amazing that we've got um, thousands of companies now focused and reporting and needing to respond to investor questions on their ESG vulnerabilities, um, yet it's not sufficient. And it's kind of like the floor has widened and it's gotten stronger, but we also need the ceiling to grow. And, yeah. and so we're not, so then we can move from the second story to the 15th story together over time. And that that ceiling around sustainability is about innovation and creativity and matching values and rhetoric with real action. And, and that's the stuff that I think we we might have lost a bit of that over through the pandemic, because I think you don't do that unless you're together and that the human energy and, and creativity only happens in those moments where we because it's about bravery and courage as well as about ideas. And, and that's hard to do when we're transactional, you know, in a basement and talking once in a while. So my, my hope is that in the next couple of years, we're back to raising the ceiling again with more dynamic sustainability that will complement all the fantastic ESG work that's going on. But I, I think that we can't be, be too comfortable with ESG as a concept. No, and as you say, I mean, even with remote, working now being so um, popular and sort of like it's really shifted where people, on the one hand, it, it helps climate change in the sense of getting people off the road and travel, business travel. But on the other hand, you're losing that cross um, innovation. It, it's funny you said that because it reminded us when we worked with uh, the Semmel Institute here in Los Angeles, it's a big neuroscience, they were doing a big fundraising campaign to build a new facility where they were going to have all the different disciplines of psychology, biochemistry, all with wings with a central hub because they felt that true innovation gets sparked at the water cooler where you have these intersections Exactly. Yeah. And they were trying to create a, an, a, an environment where that would happen naturally. You know, we take one step forward and two steps back. Well, let me build on that. And, and Chris, let me go back to the ceiling that uh, the analogy that you were using. What are like the top three things that needs to change or improve for us to make that happen? Raising that ceiling. It's a good question. I think we need a couple of things. We need stronger rewards and maybe stronger risks or punishments to a degree. So, so I think, and that sparks, I mean, in, in all of our work right. and looking over when, when a company before being recognized as a leader, all of a sudden becomes a leader, like they cross the, the Rubicon to all of a sudden, now they're a leader. What happened? What was the, yeah. what was the transformation journey? It was boiled down to a very simple set of three mm -hmm. things. We, we called them three Ps. One being around pressure, 
So some sort of pressure point was required in almost all cases of companies who've become recognized as a leader in sustainability. Um, some can be very monumental, like a massive reputation crisis, or they can be quite subtle, like just a malaise of performance and and those kinds of things. But a pressure was was critical, so there's a there's a need to change. Secondly, there was um, a person, so there's a human story. There's a, a provocateur somehow. Hmm. Sometimes the CEO, sometimes the chief sustainability officer, someone sometimes a board member, someone sometimes someone external. I mean, I know. Sir Stuart Rose at uh, MS was uh, very turned on by Al Gore, and and Al Gore really did change, give had an epiphanous moment for for um, for Mr. Rose. So those things are important because there's a human dimension to make it happen. And the third one is around perspective and a nuanced difference that this organization collectively just sees the world differently. That they just sort of tilted like, oh, now I get it, and th- and that kind of thing is is powerful. So you need. You need both the um, incentives to see that there's a there's something to win here, and um, we've got to we've got to go for it because we've got market share issues, or we want to be recognized, or we want to be the partner of choice with governments or civil society, or or our employees increasingly demanded and needed because of the war for talent. All those things are there, and I think that business case is very strong and robust and increasing. And then secondly, there I think to really catalyze catalyze it, you need that sense of um, jeopardy. And in some cases, like organizations committed and purpose-led, like a Patagonia, I, I know that you know as they went through their rebranding of their purpose a couple of years ago, it was a taking stock of how fierce they need to be to meet this uh, environmental crisis that's accelerated since the company was founded. Even it's, it's those things that all come together, and and I think we need to, we need leaders who are ready to um, to to dive in and 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 pull their organizations along as well. Uh- well, funny you say that. Uh, you work with and advise leaders around the world. If you would speak to, uh, Zelensky has given the world a masterclass in leadership. and He's not done. But from your point of view, from where you sit, from all that you advise, can you speak a little bit to his courage and his, and his leadership? Well, quite, quite, I mean, he's quite an extraordinary leader, isn't he? And an unexpected one, right? Right. Unexpected. A comedian. <laughs> a comedian. And um, I think having uh, not full, um, fully embraced by the the electorate, you know, through the election, but then after, you know, like 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 many politicians, sort of a polarized country and, and uh, not having massive approval ratings. But yet... Okay. The, the crisis, any kind of crisis that's as existential as, as the Ukrainians are facing, I think um, he has been able to rise up by being very purposeful and clear and focused. He's communicated um, clearly and consistently, and, and again, using values-driven language and clarity. He has a North Star, which is to, um, you know, to have victory and secure the freedom of of ukraine so those all those elements are there um and he's just because of his acting background he's naturally a a wonderful communicator and i think in in those cases you've got someone who's playing understands their role um probably plays and he's got a, a sense it seems like he has a sense of humility and where he collaborates again back to that important um, outcome and process, he does that very well. So he's not looking at the battlefield and coming up with 
strategies. He understands his role is not that and has trust in his team and his generals and his defense minister, um, where we know other politicians are micromanage and go beyond and all those elements. So it, it, it is a masterclass. It's also a sense of um, delegated or distributed leadership that's happening in Ukraine. And he's the kind of leader that feels comfortable letting that transpire. And that's what good CEOs um, do yeah. as well, right? It's yeah. not just about them. It's not about having them control. They 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 are clearly setting the direction and being the, the the communicator in chief in many cases. Right, and you know, demonstrating. I mean, that's what I walking the the talk. Uh, I mean, you know, the fact that he has put himself in great danger, staying and being doing what you know the way that he conducts his uh, of going and being in the trenches still. You get that sense. It's so genuine and authentic. You know, we meet leaders every day and they have the talk, but they aren't really doing the walk. I mean, the whole C-suite is not really demonstrating. And and we, and we did some great uh, analytical research a while ago trying to understand what is the formula for trust building? Like, what, what does that yes. look like? And, and it came down to three things, which I think Zelensky uh, embodies really effectively what one is competency you know it's got to be know what you're talking about you know you have to be articulate you've got to be on you know a command of details and like that. so there's a competency element and it's mm-hmm. true with a president or um a brand i mean this is all the, you've got to be functionally competent you've got to do it's going to pre- prevent cavities it better prevent cavities <laughs> these simple kind of things and then the second piece of it and that's the functional part there's the, an emotive bit which we called human and I think it's true for brands as well, but but to mm. be human, which means to be real, to be vulnerable, to be transparent, to be who you are and authentic and genuine, all these things oh. that we know, but it's, you know, so there's nothing new there. But the third element that I think is fundamental is to be purposeful and to have a clear narrative around what that looks like and to be values driven over and above the human part, to be really like very concrete about what do you stand for? What do you try to do? So that's not new to be competent, human, and purposeful. What is, I think, the challenge and what he's done really eloquently is that he does all three things all the time. That's the magic to do all of those all the time and everything you do, and then it clicks. Otherwise, you can be competent and wonky, but then once in a while you be human, but then you become a robot and it doesn't work, right? It's and, and, and it feels like it truly comes from his heart and soul. He's not being coached to do this. It's just in this guy's DNA. And that's what makes them so um, right. Well, yeah. and, and there is no time for image making or handling. Right. And- <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no media training. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for the CEO. Yeah. Let's not say that. Let's say this. Wait a minute. Stop this. Let's rewrite the script. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we can't do that. Mm. It's well, just incredible. Yeah. Uh, anything you would like to talk about that we didn't bring up, or that's top of mind to you? I know we covered a lot here. I think what what is, I mean, I guess what what I am excited about going forward is just this, which is a very obvious thing, but it's one that I think the sustainability community and the corporate community in particular has taken a a long time to get around, get their heads around, but just the power of nature Mm. and nature as a framework, nature as an outcome and nature as something that becomes a 
a method and, and a process. And, and, and so the nature agenda is growing, which is exciting. We do have this um, important convention on biological diversity, which is like a global uh, governance system akin to the climate change um, COP process. And so their COP is at 15, the Convention on Biological Diversity, the UN event, and it'll be in Montreal in December. Mm -hmm. And I think um, this is a very important meeting because we're looking at to try and together with climate goals, create nature goals and understand the depth of the challenge, but also the solutions which inevitably have a very um, important connection to people. So to try and create nature-based solutions to climate change, um, we need to um, empower some of the most vulnerable communities in the world because they are stewards or they're the occupiers or the livers in proximity to rich biodiversity areas. So you've got indigenous people across the world who are very close to 80% of the most important biologic biodiverse um, areas on the planet they if we can find ways to help them do what they've been doing for millennia we're on we've got some really wonderful opportunities to kind of do that and in montreal I, i'm i'm hoping that there'll be a, an important business contingent to be able to try and take some of this con conceptualization of nature which is very easy for all of us little kids understand nature we don't talk about climate change you can talk about nature very simply everyone loves nature no one's against it um except perhaps in Northern Ontario in June during black fly season. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but there's, there's something very exciting and ironically a little re refreshing to be able to look at nature as a lens to drive sustainability processes and companies. So that that's exciting. Yeah. And, and that it's so intertwined with that social justice. Totally. Totally. Yeah, it, and, yeah. and it fits, it fits really nicely and, and we can see the value of nature and nature based solutions and environmental services that the planet gives us and how do we begin to put our arms around that and, and protect it and preserve it and recognize it and that'll be a, a wonderful thing for our for our children and grandchildren and their grandchildren etc and what do you see with the financial element now coming to exploding as far as the support of ESGs investing do you think that that is sufficient? Or what will happen over time? Yeah, I think I think like everything because this is very complicated stuff, right? Like, when, you know, on one it hand, is. it's not like let's stop be doing stupid stuff and have a smarter planet. Okay, that's that's easy, and everyone understands we've got to change something because what we're doing isn't isn't going well. But beyond that, the specifics are very complicated, and we're, and we're collectively learning because again, it's not one individual, one organization. It's everybody starting to you know how do we do stuff differently together and at a systemic level. And, and social re-engineering our economies and societies really hard. But I think on the ESG piece, first of all, the, 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 this was part of the you know 30-year hope in the business case is that if we just get the financial community to switch on to sustainability, we can start reallocating capital in a way which will change everything. So that was very, very incremental and niche for a long time until the ESG conversation arose at scale probably three years ago. Um, and, you know, Larry Fink at BlackRock has a, a huge, has played a huge Sorry. role in legitimizing yeah. the fact yes. that looking at these things like sustainability indicators is an important part, should be an important part of our long-term valuation strategy for investors. 
great. You know, a lot of people have said that for a long time, but he had the credibility and have to say it in a mainstream way, which was catalytic. And I think we, so that was great. And, but like everything else, the first wave has problems and we're, I think now into the second wave of ESG and a lot of critique around it, um, of it not being sufficient and robust and is, is investing in the, you know, the, the fangs, like, you know, the Facebooks and the Apples and the Amazons, Mm -hmm. is that, is that really ESG investing? Maybe it's better than investing in armaments or oil, but you know, is that, and and if we have trillions of dollars in assets under management that are ESG oriented, nothing's changed. And, and either the, either the answer is that there's a lag in the system, which will take a while. And then all of a sudden there'll be a massive change in a hockey stick, maybe, or that this lens that we've, prescribed to ESG has been too simple and too easy and hasn't been sharp enough in some way. So I think we're getting to the next level of trying to dig in and say, what is what truly is sustainable uh, performance look like? And then how do we differentiate it more significantly? And that's where the capital needs to needs to reward and support mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. So I'm optimistic, but it's but again, like like the ESG, I think is the floor in all this conversation. It's good that it's wider. It's good that it's brought in companies that didn't think about it or didn't feel necessary. And we know when one serious investor asks one question, all of a sudden everything changes inside the company. Yeah, and um, and that's great. Uh, yeah, there's no question. This is a long, long arc, uh, yeah. but for the most part, is pointing in the right direction. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Rocket. Yeah, yeah. Really enjoyed this conversation. I hope we have more conversations. Yeah, me too. Me too. Although you know, when I'm in when I'm in LA, I should be in there in the falls. Yes, we would love that. (laughs) I would love that. Great. All right. Take care. Thanks so much, much. Chris. Cheers. Yep. Bye bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts, and please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.